Episode number four, Making Places Safe for People and Property. This is the Crime School Radio Show, where industry experts discuss the business of fighting crime and prevention strategies for making places safe. Leading today's discussion is security expert, Chris McGoey. Welcome to Crime School. On today's show, we're talking about the concept of places and its role in crime prevention. This episode is intended to give you a sneak preview about the significance of places before we take a deep dive into the subject matter in future episodes. If you think about it, crime needs a place to happen. Any real discussion about crime prevention should first focus on the where question. I could tell you that after four and a half decades in the crime prevention business, it is far easier to develop a security plan for a single place than to try to design protective strategies to answer all the questions like who, what, when, how, and why a crime might occur. There's just too many variables to attempt to protect against them all. For example, there are many different types of places, both large and small, public and private. There's retail shopping centers. There's some giant regional ones and very small strip centers. The same goes for restaurants, nightclubs, residential housing, anywhere from a duplex to a 3,000-unit apartment property. There's hotels. There's office spaces. There's schools, universities, uh, there's hospitals, entertainment complexes, houses of worship, the list goes on and on. And there's many different types of crimes that occur against people and property. There's many different types of people committing these crimes, both male and female, and of all ages. Crime occurs at different times of the day, on different days of the week. Criminals are using an ever-changing variety of methods tools, technology, and weapons. Now, we can't count on criminals to act logically or rationally because they're often under the influence of alcohol or drugs. And criminals have a different level of motivation, making some deterrable and some not so much. The uncertainty of criminal activity and the media coverage can seem overwhelming. This reality makes it even more difficult for property managers in both the public and private sector to start the process of formulating a security plan necessary to make their property safe. I know from firsthand experience that many property owners and managers think that crime is really this enormous societal problem. They think that the causes of crime exist outside of their place of business or residence, and they have no control over it. Many people believe that crime is inevitable, And crime will happen regardless of what they do. So why spend money attempting to prevent it? Many believe that since they pay taxes, the job of crime prevention should be handled by the government, you know, including the uh, police or sheriff and the courts. Well, it seems to me that we've tried that. We've been using the arrest and incarceration model of crime prevention since the founding of our country. In the United States, the government, the police, the prosecutors, the courts, We've arrested, prosecuted, convicted, sentenced, and incarcerated more criminals 
than in any other country. Now, you could say that this method definitely has had some impact on crime in our society. Evidenced by the national crime rate has been down for at least the last 10 years, at least temporarily. But the arrest and jail model is just not very economical. In fact, it is tremendously expensive, and it's not very efficient in preventing crime long term. The worst part of the arrest and incarceration model is that some person or some business has to become a victim of crime first before the arrest response kicks in. I will invite multiple guests on future episodes to discuss all aspects of our criminal justice system and talk about inmate rehabilitation while in jail or prison or while on probation or while on parole. You know, when you compare the national crime statistics to the arrest clearance rates for these crimes, it's clear that the government is not very effective in solving most criminal activity. So whose job is it to prevent crime and for making places safe? Well, if you were to go online and Google the words crime prevention, most of the results that come back are from law enforcement websites and police organizations offering helpful tips about preventing crime. I suppose this is why many in society believe it's the job of law enforcement to prevent crime, even on private property. Now, law enforcement agencies are definitely critical partners in crime prevention, and they could have a dramatic impact on the crime rate of any property. However, making places safe on privately owned property is not, I'm going to underscore the word not, the primary job of the police or sheriff, or any government agency for that matter. The primary job of the police is to enforce laws and respond to calls for service to every property within their jurisdiction. And after they do, they leave and they go on to another call without putting a permanent security plan in place. Okay then, who should develop these security plans? The answer to that question is a matter of duty, control, authority, or agreement. The legal duty for a private property owner to make places safe is a complex legal question, often argued by lawyers and the courts. Many property owners refuse to address their responsibility and their role in contributing to criminal activity and the impact that it has against others. It's those bad property owners that end up being sued for negligence and give the industry a black eye. In future episodes, we'll interview attorneys, judges, property management experts about the legal concepts of duty, negligence, liability, and the sometimes overlapping responsibility for making places safe. Now here's a list who I find is typically responsible for making places safe. And I'll list them in the order of precedence. First and foremost is the property owner. Now, that holds true for both public and private entities. And that property owner will typically delegate some or all of that responsibility to a property manager. And that person acts like an agent of an owner. Sometimes the responsibility falls to a tenant, who is the only person actually residing on the premises and has control over the immediate space. Sometimes it's a lessee of a property. It's common to find a a situation where a property owner will lease the entire land and structures to a business operator 
to run their business. And they're logically so responsible for what activities occur there. Sometimes the role of making places safe is delegated further down to a contractor, very commonly to a security guard agency or an alarm monitoring company or a maintenance company. Sometimes the responsibility falls flat in the lap of the property user. Now you might ask, well, how is a user responsible for making places safe? Well, by not acting recklessly themselves, by controlling their behavior and not creating a, a dangerous situation by their conduct. Now, typically, there's some combination of that list that I just gave you, of the property owner, a manager, a tenant, a lessee, a contractor, all kind of working together to make a property safe. So a common issue that I run across is that the person in control of the property doesn't really know that they're supposed to have a security plan or when it's time to have one. Well, in my travels over many years, I discovered that most places are already reasonably safe probably because most people abide by the laws of society. If you think about it, once you get away from the major cities and the high traffic coastal areas and international border crossings, places are just safer. Now, some places are inherently safe. Now, I don't mean to say 100% safe or guaranteed safe or perfectly safe, but they are inherently safe without any thought action, or intention required to make them that way. These fortunate places usually have several things in common. They just happen to be located in a safe geographic area or a safe, nice neighborhood. The nature of the premises is usually low risk. An example might be a single-family home with just one operator and no traffic, and it's private. It's going to be low risk versus a 24-hour convenience store located on a freeway off-ramp, which might be an example of high risk. Inherently safe properties tend to have daily activity and visitor traffic that is also low risk. And then finally, the place has some capable guardians in place that in general watch over the place, enforce rules, and make sure that people behave themselves. For all practical purposes, they have an informal security plan in place, sometimes for decades, but they just haven't bothered to identify it, label it, or formally document it. I guess that's where security consultants like me come in. That's what we do. We break it down. We identify security plan components. We label them. We call them fancy names. We document them. We bring the ideas and the concepts to the forefront. We create an actionable security plan between all the involved parties based on the foreseeable crime risk. Now, unfortunately, some properties are not reasonably safe due to crime risk factors on or near the property and require some level of intention and action in the form of a security plan to reduce the crime risk. There's a couple of key words in that sentence. Uh, let me see if I can remember it. To make a property reasonably safe, requires some level of intention and action. Intention and action, meaning that you just can't go along day to day without having done anything or provide any thought or influence over the situation. Otherwise, it's called luck. Some places are unsafe due to careless business operations and mismanagement. 
Sometimes these places become a crime magnet and negatively affect all adjacent places. So what's a security plan anyway? Well, generally speaking, a security plan is a voluntary, intentional, and protective response for making places reasonably safe from foreseeable criminal acts identified by a crime risk assessment. Now, let's not get bogged down here with all these legal terms and legal jargon. The term reasonably safe is a security standard of care question. That means that the security plan doesn't have to be excessive, but it should meet the burden of being adequate under the circumstances. And the security plan should be suitable for the nature of the premises. Now, as we go forward, we'll define all these terms, we'll clarify these concepts, and we'll put them in context with actual properties and actual crime situations so it'll become perfectly clear. Speaking of clear, I'm not aware of any legal requirement that any place is required to have a perfect security plan or guarantee the personal safety of anyone who comes on a property or prevent every unforeseeable criminal incident. The security plan just needs to be reasonable under the circumstances. Now, a typical reasonable security plan involves the integration of really five broad categories. You could do it by using hardware, equipment, personnel, or procedures. And the fifth category is really the design factor. A very good property design will allow us to make a reasonable safe property and provide protective measures using these four categories on a very limited basis. Whereas a poorly designed property may require all of them used in conjunction with each other at a significant rate. Some design features that are favorable might be a high-rise building where the, where the access points are really only at the ground level. So by putting protective measures focused on the ground level and controlling access, your crime issues on the upper floors of the structure should be minimized. Now, if you compare that to a garden apartment property, where all of the units are accessible from the ground level, front, back, and sides, and the common areas, it requires much more in terms of planning and use of these other four elements to protect criminal activity. I know it sounds vague, but trust me, I will clarify all this in future episodes where I could be specific. We will spend an entire episode on each security plan category and flesh it out fully for you. So the bottom line, you're the architect of your own security plan for your own property that's under your control. I think a security plan should be in writing and it should clearly define and articulate a plan of action in great detail. It's your blueprint for crime prevention. It's your policy and procedure manual. It's a basis for your training programs. It's a basis for auditing and compliance. It's a basis for discovering what parts of the plan are working and which are not. It's a basis for budgeting for expenses. One, two, three years in advance. Boy, isn't that a great concept. It's a basis for measuring results. It gives the ability to adjust the plan until it's just right for the circumstances on any property. And a really big benefit 
of having a security plan is it is your defense against civil liability and negligence claims for failing to provide adequate security because your security plan is defense exhibit number one that shows just the opposite, that you are being reasonable under the circumstances and that your security plan was definitely suitable for the nature of the business and therefore it was reasonably safe. So in summary, a responsive action for making a place reasonably safe is to develop a security plan specifically designed for that specific place and the level of foreseeable crime risk. Sounds complicated, but it's not really. When a security plan is designed for a place, it is not dependent upon the sale of the property, changes to management, or turnover of tenants or contractors. This is so big. When I discovered this philosophy many, many years ago, it was life-changing in the impact it would have on a business, that we didn't have to start from scratch every time a property changed hands, management, or contractors. We could simply just redirect the old security plan components to the new owner, the new manager, the new contractor, get right back on track in preventing criminal activity. So I think we've just about come full circle talking about why I believe designing a security plan for the place is the best approach for long-term success in crime prevention. In future episodes, we'll go into much greater detail and explain how to conduct a risk assessment step-by-step and design a responsive security plan for a specific property type that has a variety of criminal activity levels. I know this episode contained a lot of information and new concepts. It was intended to pique your interest about what's coming to crime school. Future episodes will be about 30 minutes in length, much more narrow in scope, with much more detail given about each property type, specific criminal activity, and solutions to that activity. I want to personally invite you to become part of the community at crimeschool.com. By being a student and learning these concepts, or by being a teacher and sharing your expertise about crime and loss prevention subject matter, and finally, taking this knowledge outside and putting it into practice by making places safe for people and property. I invite you to join the Crime School community by providing your email address at any opt-in box on almost any page at crimeschool.com. This will give you immediate access to the new audio and video content, any new articles, any networking opportunities, and it will be your gateway to contributing to the content and the discussion. Thanks for listening and for doing your part in making places safe. This is the Crime School Radio Show with your host, Chris McGoey. We invite you to comment on today's topic and join the Crime School community. For more information and show notes from this episode, please visit crimeschool.com.